Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 7th of December, 2020. And today I'm joined by Dr. Richard Thomas. He is head of communications from an organization that you may not have heard of called Traffic. And they're really focused on the global wildlife trade. Their kind of mission statement, which comes from their executive director, Stephen Brood, reads, we want to see a world where wildlife trade is sustainably managed, maintains healthy populations, contributes to development, and helps motivate commitments to conserve wild species and habitats. We dive into all of that in this show, and it's a little bit longer than usual, so I am not going to hold you up anymore in the intro, other than to direct you to a monthly column that I write on the Modern Huntsman website, which is modernhuntsman.com, called Into the Anthropocene. And we cover a lot of topics uh, that are very similar to the kind of things that we're talking about in this podcast. So go over and check that out. And otherwise, uh, buckle up and enjoy the show. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. We're going to be talking about a really interesting organization that you are head of communications for, um, but it may be one that a lot of people haven't actually heard of. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, global conservation on this show, and it, I think most people's minds when we talk about global conservation go to like biologists in the field looking at like genetic diversity of species or restoration of habitat. Uh, but traffic has a, a real big focus on the actual trade, the legal and illegal trade of wildlife around the world. Can you explain to me how traffic started and what what does a day-to-day of the organization look like? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so traffic's origins, actually, uh, we were founded in 1976 and I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of CITES. That's the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Uh, and that came into being in 1975. And it's no coincidence that traffic was formed shortly afterwards because our original role was to help governments with implementing the new convention that was overseeing trade in wild animals and plants. Uh, we were originally formed by IUCN, that's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, and the other... Which has has the famous red list that a lot of people correct. will be aware of, yeah. Yes, yes, I'm sure uh, many of your listeners will have referred to those, those red lists, uh, absolutely invaluable uh, source of accurate information on uh, wild animals and plants. Um, and the other partner when traffic was created was WWF, who uh, I'm sure is a household name uh, to, to, to many of your listeners. Um, but a few years ago, we, we um, uh, became our own uh, independent organization. But prior to that, we were essentially the wildlife trade specialists and experts uh, providing information to IUCN for their, their red list information in particular, uh, and to WWF, uh, who are well known uh, in the conservation field. When people talk about wildlife trade, their, their immediate thought is probably, uh, if they're thinking about illegal trade, they think about ivory being trafficked. Yeah, or pangolins. or Pangolins, yeah, this kind of thing. But actually, they're a tiny fraction of the trade in wild animal and plant resources that are being uh, traded uh, worldwide. And if you do the breakdown, the, the biggest by far and away are timber resources. And they're something like uh, 65% of all wild commodities that are in trade uh, is timber. 
uh, and this is followed by fisheries. Uh, and then an awful lot of trade is actually in uh, so-called non-wood forest products, so things like nuts and berries and anything that comes out of a forest that's not timber. And then down at the bottom, you've got the, the, the actual um, wild animals uh, that are traded, uh, some of it legal, some of it illegal. Uh, the, the one that gets the highest profile, of course, is the uh, illegal trade because uh, that's what uh, the media tends to be most interested in and attracts the headlines. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think that there, especially now with the, the heightened awareness of species like, like pangolin, uh, which is often quoted as being the most illegally trafficked mammal on the planet, uh, but also, like you, you rightly mentioned, uh, rhino horn and ivory and uh, some of the like rosewood in terms of timber, that illegal component of the trade, I think, has somewhat uh, tainted a view of what wildlife trade is with very much a public perception that wildlife product trade is very much a negative thing. Uh, what is the reality on the ground uh, when it come, comes to trade? Because the, I understand uh, from you know, the, the information and investigations that, tra that traffic do and from seeing different operations around the world that there is a lot of positives uh, to be taken from the regulated trade in wildlife products. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, well-regulated trade uh, can bring real uh, benefits to uh, people who rely upon it for their livelihoods, uh, you know, traders of particular uh, plant species or uh, even, you know, certain kinds of animals and so on. I mean, you know, fish are, are eaten and massively important source of protein for, for billions of people. Uh, around the world, well, of course, uh, the um, economic uh, benefits, uh, you know, are, are vital for national economies. You know, uh, things like timber exports and so on. Uh, but the the critical thing is that any trade in these wild resources needs to be uh, managed in a sustainable uh, manner, and of course, it needs to be uh, carried out. Legally, because uh, the last thing we want uh, to see happen is trade uh, benefiting criminals who are carrying out uh, any illegal activities. But uh, don't underestimate the, the real positive value uh, and importance to uh, you know, countless numbers of, of livelihoods and, and people around the world of sustainable legal trade so it is something to be celebrated uh, and it is something to be encouraged and that, and um, uh, traffic actually uh, has a uh, an area of work on um, wild harvested uh, plant products and uh, we work alongside um, something called the fair wild uh, standard uh, which is um, uh, a certification standard. Now, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners will have uh, heard of fair trade. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking about. Where, as you were mentioning, describing this to me, I'm thinking like fair trade coffee. Yeah, so fair trade is for cultivated products. So coffee is cultivated, whereas fair wild is almost the equivalent uh, for wild source products. So if you go into your local supermarket now, you can see uh, if you look at 
packs of, for example, Puka Herbs teas. Uh, if you look on there, you'll see a little uh, logo that says Farewell's Certified Ingredients um, on their licorice, which is sourced from Kazakhstan. And the, the Farewell certification means that the, the product in there was, was harvested. Uh, there's, there's checks in place to make sure it's uh, sourced sustainably. Um, and there is a premium paid by uh, the buyers and the uh, to the producers of that product. And some of the money goes into a, a community fund that can be used uh, to support the community that is producing the product. And we, we have examples of uh, Farewell certified products um, from uh, all around the world, actually. Uh, and increasingly, it's, it's something that uh, industry is buying into, and we're seeing more and more um, products with Farewell certified ingredients coming into the marketplace. So how is, is that um, is that a system that has been implemented by traffic or, or who are your other global partners to help bring this and raise the awareness of it uh, to, to people actually on the ground who would be harvesting these natural products anyway? Um, well, it was originally developed, the, the actual Farewell standard uh, upon which the certification scheme is based was it was originally developed by traffic alongside uh, specialists at IUCN and WWF. Uh, and then we took it to uh, industry and, and we got buy-in from uh, Puka Herbs, as I mentioned, but um, big, big um, retailers like uh, Traditional Medicinals in the United States, uh, they've taken it up. And we've then um, used the, uh, the model, if you like, uh, to talk to to local wild harvesters in uh, places, I don't know. Uh, some examples would be India, China, Vietnam, uh, South Southeast Europe, um, all over the place. Um, who obviously are producing very different products, but um, the principles upon which they're harvested are, are the same. So that first of all, we'll carry out an analysis um, of basically what what levels. Uh, of offtake are possible each year uh, without negatively impacting the uh, populations of the plants that are being harvested. And then we've helped local um, co-ops to be established and also uh, that's given them uh, traction when talking to international buyers that they're able to show, demonstrate that they've got sustainably harvested products and that uh, in turn attracts a premium price. Uh, and so there's benefits to the producers at the the bottom rung of the uh, trade chain. Yeah, I, and I suppose that the hope here is that the more people uh, who embrace this, and the more of these products that have the stamp on it, there's a smaller likelihood that we're, you're going to have products coming into the market that are coming from unsustainable sources. That's exactly the thinking behind it, and. Ultimately, uh, what drives uh, trade chains in any commodity is the demand uh, by the consumers at the um, the end <laughs> end point. So, if you if consumers are looking for and asking for uh, products that they know have been uh, sustainably harvested, uh, that in turn will will feed down the trade chain and and help drive uh, the production systems toward towards the sustainable uh, model. Yeah, it's a really important point. It's a little bit like um, I think of if not that I buy it very often anymore, but if I was to buy a tin of tuna, 
I'm always going to turn it around and make sure that it's uh, caught in from a sustainable store source with, um, and it be pole caught. So there's no chances of uh, turtles and dolphins being caught in nets, which was very, very much part of the industry um, only a matter of years ago. I, I would imagine now probably most tuna on the shelves probably comes from uh, um, sustainable sources and is pole and line caught. But it's a, it's a similar sort of thing. If us as consumers of whatever that product is care enough to to check and and and, and look into how these products are sourced, then that demand will determine the supply. Absolutely. I mean, consumer bu uh, buying power, purchasing power is, is key to this because um, ultimately that, that does decide uh, industry policy. With something you were just say, saying earlier um, about products going in, you know, particularly for sort of traditional medicines, I, I think there's a view in the West in particular that Chinese uh, tr traditional medicine, which we associate in particular with uh, pangolin scales and we associate with the use of rhino horns and ivory carving, is entirely negative. Uh, but from what you're saying just early on in our, our conversation, I would imagine it probably supports quite a considerable... Uh, economic component of trade from various parts of the world, some of which will be legal and sustainable? Yes. So um, th there is rather uh, a negative in, uh, perception of a lot of traditional Chinese medicine uh, in Western societies. But uh, because of the parts from threatened and endangered species that are, are used in some of the prescriptions, but actually... Um, the the traditional Chinese medicine industry in, in China is uh, very aware of this. And I, I think we should acknowledge the number of steps that have been taken to try and um, reduce the use uh, and, and indeed in, on occasion uh, ban the use of some of the uh, threatened animal parts. So just this year, pangolins uh, were removed from the main body of the official uh, Chinese pharmacopoeia. Uh, that's basically the the, the list of uh, medicines uh, that are approved for um, for use. Uh, it was many years ago that tiger parts were removed from that pharmacopoeia, and, and similarly, uh, rhino horn. Um, and uh, the you know traditional Chinese medicine is sometimes written off as being um, you know not not. Uh, operated on the same sort of lines as, as Western medicine is. But, but let's not forget where this remarkable antimycin uh, drug that treats malaria came from, that has a traditional Chinese medicine uh, origin where it had been used for, for centuries in the treatment of malaria, but it is now the sort of go-to uh, drug of, uh, for treatment uh, for that disease. So uh, I think there are, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, positive things that have been done to uh, try and ensure that the impact of uh, traditional Chinese medicine remedies uh, on threatened species is reduced. And, and in fact, um, a number of years ago now, traffic actually worked with the, uh, the, big, the biggest of the traditional Chinese medicine universities uh, in China to produce a textbook 
where we proposed alternatives um, to using the parts of threatened species in those textbooks. And obviously that those will now be working through the system as new students were coming into the universities and, and learning the, um, uh, the, the application of traditional Chinese medicine through the, the courses that were run there. Yeah, at at the sort of start of the the pandemic, which we're we're all still living through right now, uh, when it came out that uh, it had originated, or certainly the the, the first in- infection in humans had originated in a wet market in China, there was a call some weeks after that, and uh, a letter. I, I can't. I'm not sure if it was an open letter or if it, if it was a a call to um, to CITES. I, I can't quite recall which was suggesting a global ban in wildlife trade. I think it was almost as open as that. At the time, that seemed like an incredibly naive and very um, short-sighted statement with not a lot of understanding of what the global trade was. And yet there were, you know, there were scientists with their name on this, on this letter. Yeah, I think that was a, a sort of um, a gut reaction uh, to perceiving the the origins of uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the associated COVID-19 disease, uh, having come from uh, the trade of wild animals uh, in this Wuhan market. Um, I think it's, uh, as you say, naive. I mean, I think just simply outright banning all trade is just going to push uh, it underground. Um, the, the the key is demand. Uh, if demand persists, then trade will persist. Persist. So what we really need to do is take, try and get an understanding of where the the virus, uh, what its origins actually were, and if there are things within wildlife trade that are potentially risky then to try and uh, ensure that those practices aren't taking part. So things like, um, you know, the mixing of particular species together may be very highly, uh, very risky from a zoonotic disease perspective, that if you cram in, I don't know, a load of um, pigs and pangolins and what have you into a, into a market, then that uh, creates a very risky environment for that spillover event to happen where a disease will make the jump from uh, animals to people uh, with potentially, you know, uh, fatal impacts. Um, But simply just banning things is just going to push it underground and potentially make the system uh, more dangerous, that there would be uh, less regulation uh, because by its nature it is underground. So I think it's 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 a very uh, short-sighted and, and you know potentially uh, risky approach. Uh, simply to just say ban everything, um, but we do really need to get to an understanding about where this particular disease really did originate, because uh, subsequently the evidence certainly doesn't suggest that that Wuhan market is the original source of the outbreak. Um, It appears to be just a location from where the disease uh, 
had an, there was a small epicenter for a disease, but it was no more significant in some ways than um, you know a, a, a nightclub where a lot of people got the disease. It was just a location where a lot of people uh, caught the virus. But where did the virus actually come from? And this is a really interesting question, and it's um, the, the the WHO has been um, uh, commissioned to to go into China and and try to get to the bottom of that. And I, it is absolutely critical to understanding. I mean, we do know from genetic studies uh, that the ancestor of the virus originated in uh, horseshoe bats. Um, which are found, well, they're found worldwide, but the particular species uh, that it appears to have come from uh, are found in southern China. And so we should be looking there and, and also trying to understand how the spillover event happened. Did it go direct from bats to people or did it go via another animal group? And you, you mentioned pangolins earlier and there's been a lot of speculation as to whether pangolins were that missing link in, in the species jump from bats to people. And I think that's still very much open to question now. But uh, I would like to see this critical investigation carried out earlier rather than later, because obviously the longer you lead it, leave it, the colder the trail will go. Um, so I, I, I know China has, has said that um, while they're happy to uh, cooperate with uh, an independent investigation into the causes, uh, they, they uh, are planning to wait until the pandemic is over. Well, that could be uh, still some way off. Yeah, it certainly looks like it uh, where we're sitting right now. Because uh, am I speaking to you? You're you're in England. Yes. Yeah, so you've just gone back into lockdown. We're we're slightly we're slightly behind you in in Scotland here. We're not quite back into full <laughs> full lockdown yet. Um, but hopefully we're going to see an end to this at some point, uh, you know, maybe 2021 by the look of it right now. But yeah, it's a very, very serious topic. And I, I and it's I think it's completely understandable that kind of knee jerk reaction to this this um, this disease has come from wild sources spilled over into humans and has shut the world down. So it's understandable why there might be a reaction to say, let's shut the global trade in wildlife. Uh, but I, I think that there's probably a very poor understanding from your average member of the public about just how much trade there is. And like we said kind of at the start of the podcast, it, most people associate that with, with animals, but the plant trade is far, far bigger, and we rely on it. Oh, yes, absolutely, we rely on it, yeah. I wanted to ask you specifically about um, two reports that have been done quite recently. Uh, one, which I was just reading prior to uh, us jumping on a call and recording this podcast, about the tiger trade, which I was shocked to find how much or how many tigers are traded across the European Union and the UK, um, and it being potentially used as a cover for illegal trade. Just talk me through that that investigation and and the reporting and 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 some of these these numbers. Sure. Um, so uh, tigers are uh, phenomenally uh, easy to breed in captivity. 
uh, and I'm sure yeah, so much so there's more tigers in captivity than in the wild. Absolutely, yes. I mean the the, the world's wild tiger population, which is obviously all in Asia, is um, you know around the three three and a half thousand figure. Um, but there's more than that in the USA, <laughs> and there's more than that in China, in captive facilities. And indeed, the European Union has uh, an unknown number. Uh, it's not as high as those, but uh, it's certainly in the hundreds of animals. Um, and it's actually quite extraordinary how um, little regulation and oversight of some of the, uh, the trade there is. Um, and we've seen in recent years that, that, that was uh, um, spoken about in the report you referred to, um, the the close ties between uh, the Czech Republic and Vietnam, their historical political ties, um, and the Vietnamese community there being engaged in, in um, trafficking tiger parts from uh, the Czech Republic to uh, Vietnam uh, to supply demand there. Again, it's demand that's driving that trade. Um, but even uh, the United Kingdom's been involved in uh, exports uh, of tigers. Um, there's been a, num a number of examples uh, documented in the report. Some of this is related to um, the zoo uh, community. There's also um, some of the trade is uh, associated with um, circuses uh, and so on. Um, but it is quite extraordinary how many. Uh, tigers that there are um living outside the wild around the world yeah so so just to back up and uh, the the trade that's happening say to take the the example of um the however many i think it's a, it's a relatively small number but still a surprising number of tigers that are traded out of the uk to other parts of the world that is done legally and is permitted because these are captive uh, tigers, but it's also being used as a cover for the illegal trade in, in wild tigers or just a, an illegal trade in tiger parts that shouldn't be allowed under these circumstances? Uh, it's mainly used um, or, or, or mainly it's legal. So there is a you know proper certificated uh, CITES certificate that allows trade under particular circumstances uh, and that's all above board but yes there is an element of some trade being carried out that is illegal of tiger parts so uh, particularly bones uh, are in demand uh, for making tiger bone glue and tiger bone wine uh, and other products uh, and that trade without the permits uh, is illegal um, there's also, you know, various national legislation that uh, restricts the, the keeping of um, tigers. I mean, in the, the UK, we've got the, the Dangerous uh, Wild Animals Act um, that, that uh, means that private owners of, of, of tigers uh, at least have to register them. Uh, and I understand there are some uh, animals registered uh, thus in the UK, but it's it's... They're far from common. In Asia, we do see a lot more examples where um, captive tigers are uh, used. Well, they're both uh, in 
trade, which is illegal. There's no permit system and it's uh, banned by, by CITES. Um, and we see something like uh, two tigers a week being seized, the equivalent of uh, in, in Asia. Um, but there is some element of it that is also uh, being used um, to traffic parts of wild tigers. And obviously that's having a, a, a direct impact on uh, wild populations. So uh, Malaysia, uh, potentially Malaysia in particular, is uh, got a rapidly depleting um, tiger population. And it's almost entirely because of uh, poaching and illegal trade in uh, those animals rather than habitat loss. It's, this brings up a, an interesting question, which often gets brought up when it comes to the ivory trade, which is that uh, when there has been in the past a, a legal trade uh, with CITES uh, permits involved, that it's been used as a cover for the illegal poaching and trade of ivory. And, and this sounds like a, a kind of, it's a sm smaller, but a, a similar example like how how do we reconcile this where we have a species where there is a legal and an illegal component of it and it may very well be the case that the legal component of it allows the illegal component to be to be masked and and hidden in a way and, and these products to be traded under a legal banner, but with various loot, loopholes and with the, the, the genius that's, that's involved in, in criminal activities and, and the way that they manage to transport things around the planet, and they're using this to facilitate illegal trade. Well, I think this is a, a very significant issue, that, and it comes down to how well you monitor and regulate uh, and have oversight of that legal trade, because... Uh, it's not just um, commodities like ivory where that's the case. One of the, the biggest um, or perhaps the, the most significant issue facing uh, illegal trade coming into the uh, EU uh, of species like uh, reptiles uh, is the laundering of wild-caught animals and simply declaring them as being captive bred because there's different rules that apply to captive bred specimens under CITES. Uh, and basically, um, animals and animal products are labelled as being captive bred. And once inside the EU, of course, with the uh, open border system, uh, they can be moved within EU countries without... Uh, fear of interdiction. It's once they beyond that border crossing. So uh, it is um, absolutely a, a critical issue uh, that needs to be uh, understood and measures put in place to try and prevent um, illegal trade uh, taking place under the cover uh, of legal trade uh, and to ensure that any legal trade is just that. Is there maybe scope for using some advanced uh, technology and science that we have now, like uh, DNA barcoding? Uh, yes. I mean, they, obviously, um, there's a number of scientific developments that are proving very valuable uh, in um, helping with this uh, oversight and monitoring. Um, 
DNA is is, is an obvious one, uh, forensic techniques. Um, but one of the, the key issues, actually, that a lot of uh, enforcement agencies and customs officers face is, is simply species identification, that actually for, for non-specialists, it's actually quite hard to um, know what's being put in front of you is, is what it says it is. Yeah, very true. Uh, um, uh, but the, the, here again, there are, um, uh, you know, assistance is available. So we're, we're seeing, you know, uh, things like um, technology, you know, recognition technology uh, comes into play. And actually one of the um, uh, really powerful uh, ways in which you can uh, help to uh, monitor and look for uh, contraband in trade is is to use um, specially trained dogs, uh, detector dogs, and they're actually remarkable for being able to sniff out uh, illegal contraband uh, that they've been taught to identify, even down to the level of uh, different species of timber. Would you believe? That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, from, from 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 drugs to the to to illegal trade of different species of timber, dogs' yeah. noses. Remarkable. <laughs> They're remarkable uh, animals, yeah. They really are. That's fascinating. Uh, th- there's two other things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I want to get on to the, the recent, report call, uh, re- recent report called Beyond Poaching. Uh, but before that, I'd, as you were talking that, I was thinking about this, this balance between legal and I- illegal trade. And I was immediately thinking about uh, the abalone trade, in, particularly in South Africa and its connection with criminal networks. Um, I know a little bit about it just because I spend quite a lot of time there, but outside of South Africa and certainly outside of the continent of Africa, I think that'll be something that few people are probably aware of. Yeah, so um, abalone uh, is a a kind of uh, marine mollusk and a particular species that's in very, very high demand in East Asia, particularly um, Hong Kong and mainland. China uh, is only found in waters off South Africa, and basically uh, there's a, a a legal fishery for that abalone, but the offtake from illegal fishing uh, is far far higher, and uh, abalone is basically paid for uh, by drugs. So a lot of the divers who are going down and uh, fishing out uh, abalone from the seas uh, are paid with things like crystal meth. Um, And the control of that trade is in the hands of the so-called Hong Kong triads uh, who import, both control that drug supply uh, and import the, the abalone uh, into Hong Kong from where it's uh, onward distributed. And it obviously creates uh, huge enforcement challenges. I mean, every night you've got um, so-called rubber duck boats, a big inflatable boats going out uh, along the shoreline of uh, large areas of uh, South Africa, particularly the Western Cape and, and other regions, uh, with teams of divers on whose uh, role is to to dive down, bring up as much abalone as they can, uh, and then from there it will be um, driven to a, a processing centre where 
it's dried because it's a lot uh, lighter and easier to conceal uh, dried abalone uh, before it is then smuggled by a number of techniques, uh, but it, from there it is smuggled um, to particularly Hong Kong. And uh, it, it, it's one of the uh, key sort of products that's coming out of that region uh, that, that we've been, been looking at to try and understand the, the dynamics of both that trade, but also the, the impacts this uh, criminalization has on local communities uh, that they're reliant on um, well they're de- a lot of a lot of the the people within it are now drug dependent uh, and they're reliant on the income and source of employment that smuggling uh, and poaching abalone brings uh, and it's a, it, it's a very sad situation the the connections with the the criminal networks particularly in that case where there's this like for for the smugglers it's a perfect a perfect cycle of of drug addiction but not so much for, for people to come back and buy drugs which is the the normal uh link that they would have but so that they're dependent on uh, the smugglers for the drugs so that they'll go and poach the abalone which has a higher value for them um, and I know that this is something that's been escalating for some time. I would imagine that this is starting to have a real impact on abalone themselves as a um, as an actual commodity and the abundance of them. Oh yes, I mean abalone populations are um, under very very severe harvesting pressure and uh, are declining. I mean it's um, you know it, it, it won't it can't carry on. Uh, for much longer at the current rates of uh, illegal offtake, uh, and the ultimately that um, source of supply uh, will will dwindle away to uh, nothing. What is uh, just finally on this topic? I mean, what is being done to try and stop this and slow it down? Well. Uh, a lot of the response, of course, has been uh, enforcement. Um, so enforcement efforts have been st- stepped up to try and uh, interdict uh, these rubber duck boats that are going out with the, the teams of divers. But that's not addressing the root problem. Uh, again, ultimately, it's the demand that the consumer end that is actually driving this uh, and that if there is going to be a long-term uh, solution to this you need to to, to break that cycle you uh, either have to um, convince consumers not to eat abalone or perhaps a, 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 an easier sell uh, is to convince um, consumers only to buy uh, certified or fresh and and fresh abalone because um, by and large you can be pretty sure that any dried abalone for sale in Hong Kong is illegally sourced whereas fresh abalone uh, it's not as an attractive a commodity for the smugglers 
um, because it smells more, it's easier to detect, it weighs more, so it's more costly to transport. Um, that is uh, likely to be from a, a legal source. So if you can try and shift consumers from dried abalone to fresh abalone, that would be a, a, a step. Um, ultimately, if you're going to break that cycle, you need to uh, really substantially reduce the demand in the first place. Uh, but then, of course, you've got to back up with what's going to happen to these um, communities in, in South Africa and the drug dependency. And so you need rehabilitation um, measures. And, and ultimately, um, you need alternative uh, legal, economic uh, means of so support um, that if people have got economic opportunities, they won't get uh, drawn into this criminal underworld. Yeah, I, I think that goes a lot to, or it speaks a lot to the issues globally we have with with illegal trade is really it boils down to economic opportunity of very poor communities. And if there is economic opportunity to to make a living, and that happens to be an illegal trade of timber or uh, wildlife, then people are going to do it because that's how they put food in their mouths. Uh, and, and that's kind of a, a perfect segue into uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is this report called um, Beyond the Poaching, where Traffic have taken a very novel approach where they've actually gone and, and taken the time to interview poachers, but to try and understand the actual socio and uh, socioeconomic impacts and really get to the root cause of the reasons why people are poaching. Uh, how did that report come about and what has been the outcome of it? Well, the study came about because, um, uh, as, you, as you point out, we wanted to try and understand what really motivates um, people to become involved in wildlife crime. And so we approached the South African uh, prison service uh, and they gave us permission to, um, under carefully controlled conditions and so on, to, to, to interview um, volunteers uh, who had been incarcerated for wildlife crimes um, and to, to carry out semi-structured interviews to try and understand what really got them, you know, to, to, to where they were, you know, how come they'd ended up behind bars. And uh, it, I find it quite um, uh, heartbreaking, some of the stories. I mean, we, we touched on the economic opportunities and by far and away uh, the commonest reason people were there was, was simply because lack of job, lack of opportunity. Uh, they saw others who they knew were involved in, in poaching, driving fast cars, and, and they wanted to get some money uh, to feed their families and so on. And um, with 100%, all of the people we interviewed said they, you know, really regretted what they'd done and how they'd ended up what they, where they were. But I think there was um, a really interesting finding that of those people who were uh, jailed, very, very few were anything other than the very lowest rung in the criminal ladder. These were all the uh, the poachers or the uh, the drivers, people who were actually orchestrating the crime, who were making the profits. They weren't behind bars, and I think it really highlights 
the need that if you are to address uh, organised criminal activity, you really do need to get high up that criminal ladder and try and get the guys at the top because uh, the bottom rung are replaceable, you know, uh, that you can lock up N poachers, but there'll always be others to fill their place. Yeah, there's um, always desperate people out there. There's always desperate people out there. So really the the long-term solution are economic ones that you need to give people real meaning, life and uh, economic opportunities in life uh, if, if you're to try and curb uh, these sort of activities um, at that level. It's a, a fascinating uh, piece of research that's been done. And like I said, something which I hadn't really seen done before like that. The first thing that it made me think of uh, when I was uh, uh, reading through the report was that series that was, um, I can't actually remember what it was called now, uh, but it was based on the re- a real life uh, example in the CIA where they started actually interviewing serial killers to try and understand their mindset and so so that they could more easily catch and stop serial killers in the future. And in a way, that's kind of what's being done here. This is trying to understand the mindset of a poacher so that we can break the cycle. Um, so I thought it was a yeah, really interesting approach to actually take the time to, to speak to people um, in, in a constructive way uh, who have been, been caught and, and, and convicted of, of these wildlife crimes. But as you point out, uh, it is very easy in by comparison to catching the the networks that are making this uh, this global illegal trade possible it's very easy to catch the, the the person on the ground who's doing the the initial capture of pangolins or the the initial poaching of of uh, of ivory or timber uh, but actually trying to get higher up that chain of command to the people who are really um, uh, pulling the or making the wheels turn that's how you can in the short in the shorter term that's how you can uh, reduce this trade but in the longer term uh, we need to look at the the economics of it and uh, and the sort of social infrastructure so that those incentives aren't there yeah and and indeed um, as i mentioned earlier the demands because ultimately it is the demand of yeah. any trade yeah 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 because uh, if there is if the, if there as long as there is a demand and no supply the price will continue going up until that supply is fulfilled and that's just basic economics yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, we have a whole program of work um trying to reduce demand in uh, uh in this particular example uh very relevant would be for rhino horns, so working with Vietnamese consumers. So we actually um, interviewed consumers of rhino horn to try and understand what motivated them, why why they were using it, what uh, drove them to do that. And then we tried to uh, use that information to come up with messaging to uh, persuade them not to. Um, yeah, that's really that's key. Yeah. But that kind of, uh, almost I want to say re-education pro, uh, um, process, but it, there's that education process, I suppose, uh, is something which is long fought. You can't do that overnight. I mean, that takes a generation or two to really, for you to be able to start to see the results of it. 
Yes, it's it, it's very much a, a long term solution, and it was a, it's actually been a uh, a fascinating journey uh, for, for me, um, just trying to understand some of the um, well simple misconceptions that, that that you might have about how to go about something like this. So uh, I think traffic, like many other NGOs, thought, well, if you want to stop people using rhino horn, show them a big picture of a rhino and say, you know, why would you want to kill this? You know, and and actually that's completely the wrong message to give to users because they just see a big animal and they think, gosh, I want a piece of that. <laughs> so <laughs> and 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 similarly, um putting your logo on materials. I mean, you know, every NGO wants to be seen to be doing what it is and slaps its logo on everything wherever possible. But actually to the users, they just say, "Well, you're you're paid to t- say things like this." I can see, <laughs> can see, because your logo's on it. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good point. Actually, two, two early lessons that I got, you know, we got from some of that feedback. So that's why you don't have a logo other than the name. That well, that's one of the reasons we don't have a, a any logo on our material. That's trying to persuade uh, rhino horn consumers uh, to not to, to use rhino horn in Vietnam. Richard, this has been a fascinating conversation and one that is just so very important, that this very intricate web of global trade of wildlife products. Uh, I mean, we, we could talk for hours more on it. And I encourage people to to visit the Traffic website, which is just um, traffic.org, and have a look at the, some of the information and content that's on there. Uh, because you you do it, I think the, the the organization does a really great job of making it quite consumable, um, even in these reports with very easy and clear graphics. So you can get a real good handle on on global trade and the the issues that we face um, pretty quickly just by having a look at some of your reports. But I, I really thank you for your time today, and um, I look forward to uh, seeing what else uh, comes out of um, the traffic reports going forward. It's always something that I, I look with interest to uh, when new information comes out. And I'd also like to just direct people to, I, I noticed that you've got a, a channel on, on Vimeo with some really quite intriguing, um, but you know, frightening in many ways, uh, videos on there. The one that I just w- watched and we haven't talked about, but people can go and watch it, was on the, the shark trade out of uh, Congo Brazzaville. Yeah, absolutely. Do uh, We do try and make all our resources um, freely available so all our reports uh, can be downloaded as PDFs from the website. And as you mentioned, we've got Vimeo channel. And of course, do follow us on Twitter. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed.